I would have given a lot of money to be at the NSC meeting where they got the call saying, by the way, the Secretary of Defense has been in the hospital for three days and we just forgot to mention it to you. From DOD to Congress and from the White House to Wall Street, the NatSec Need to Know podcast, an unrehearsed podcast presenting insightful discussion and forecasts of the major national security and defense news of the day. In this segment, we've got our reporters roundtable featuring Marjorie Sensor of Defense News and Aaron Mehta of Breaking Defense. They've each covered Washington and the Pentagon for years and are as well-sourced as anyone. In segment two, we'll turn to a focused discussion on everything space with Todd Harrison, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and one of the go-to guys on defense and civil space policy, spending, and programs. Thank you all for joining. Let's get after it. We will uh, fly the uh, missing man formation for our uh, our good friend, uh, Marcus, who could not join us. I, I want to start off with really what only could be a Washington story and uh, and, and a crisis. And of course, uh, this is the very serious nature of uh, Secretary of Defense Austin's cancer uh, diagnosis and treatment uh, and then radio silence out of DOD. And, and what did the White House know? Uh, and when, if you want to take this on first, maybe Aaron, where's this at and, and how serious a deal is this? What, what do we think? There's been an uproar from the Hill and, and elsewhere. Yeah, you know, it's both a serious deal, I think, in a lot of very serious ways. And also one of those things, as you said, is a very Washington problem. You know, the Washington problem part of it is the question of, you know, was there impropriety here that the Secretary of Defense didn't want to inform people that he was sick and was radio silent? And how did his staff let this happen and go on for so long? We're told that uh, the majority of staff you know, had heard by Tuesday and that nobody bothered to uh, apparently inform the White House. Uh, according to reports, the Deputy Secretary of Defense was not informed. And certainly the media wasn't informed until Friday night. Um, so there's a, a several days gap there where this just was what can best be described generously as a complete breakdown of procedures and bureaucracy that's supposed to make sure stuff like this doesn't happen. The very serious part of it is that, you know, there's, he's in the chain of command of any sort of, you know, the, not even nuclear, but, you know, military decisions that he needs to be part of that. Um, and, you know, the president should know if his secretary of defense is in the hospital. I, I, you know, it, it, it talking with folks around DC, people, not just in the media, but in the Pentagon, people in Congress, people you know who are around that world, everyone's just flabbergasted that this could happen. It's one of those things where nobody seems to be able to explain really how this could possibly have happened. But there could have been serious repercussions if, you know, and thankfully there wasn't. There was a crisis situation uh, that the secretary needed to be weighing in on. Uh, we still don't know exactly. And Marjorie, you know, your, your team has done some reporting on this, but. Uh, exactly the status of the secretary for several days there was he you know they say that he wasn't under general anesthesia but you know I can tell you having seen a family member go through being in the hospital with a, a UTI and that's what put him back in the hospital here according to the Pentagon uh, there could be a lot of pain medication involved so we don't know how coherent or on top of things he was for that period we probably will never know and that's a pretty big deal when we're talking about the Secretary of Defense of the United States of America. Right. Marjorie, anything you'd like to kind of add on that or your perspective on, you know, both both the Washington aspects of the story, which, you know, really kind of just in this environment with the, you know, opens up the Biden administration, right? Everything's, you know, the adults are in charge uh, kind of thing. And then, you know, the, the real world aspects of it with multiple crises going on around the world, uh, you know, you, you can't be a person down in this situation. 
Yeah, and just to um, kind of continue on on what Aaron was saying, um, you know, we are seeing that uproar on the Hill House Armed Services Committee saying they're they're launching an investigation. You know, we have uh, at least one lawmaker by my last count calling for an impeachment. I think you know the Biden administration. I don't think is eager to try to confirm another. Uh, defense secretary this year. That sounds like a battle they they don't want to have. So, you know, I, I do think there's, you hinted at sort of this as a Washington story. I think that the general public's interest or outrage is probably relatively limited. Um, you know, I say from inside the, the DC bubble, I don't know that this escalates, but, you know, certainly on the Hill, there's, there's, um, there's outrage, there's upset, and, you know, more details about this could could come out in these investigations. I mean, look, to, to be fair, this is this is a very human story, right? You know, you're, you're, we're talking about cancer. We're talking about a delicate surgery. Uh, you, you know, you got a lot of things that, you know, would discretion would be sort of normally acceptable in this circumstance. But, uh, you know, you still always want your boss to know that you're going to be out of pocket. And, and certainly when your deputy goes on vacation to Puerto Rico or, or whatever, as we, you know, I think the reporting has said that Kath Hicks was on vacation. They're like, you know, there's, there's ways around that, right? You could, if, if it's scheduling and it's elective. And again, I know elective is a big question mark because you don't, you don't really want to wait around on a cancer diagnosis. Um, you know, there's just ways to better manage this. And I think that's really, I guess it comes down to the judgment question. Um, but Aaron, I saw you had your hand up. So what, what do you uh, want to add? There is precedent for how a cabinet member shares information about their health. Um, certainly the president, we know whenever he goes in for a routine colonoscopy or routine, you know, elective procedure, the, you know, a statement is issued. We see that from other cabinet sector as well. If the attorney general goes in for a, a you know, procedure, there's a notification in the media. Um, the Pentagon really just slapped itself in the face uh, with how it handled this. And it because they could have just issued a statement saying, you know, the, the secretary, you know, went in for a procedure, had to return to the hospital. He is aware and functioning, uh, you know, but, you know, we, he's going to be recovering you know, or just something basic. And it would have been a you know fairly short story. And then when he came back to work, it would have been, OK, Austin's back and it's fine. They blew it up by trying to, you know, it, it, and according to Pat Ryder, the, the one-star general who's the spokesman for Pentagon, unintentionally, uh, effectively, by default, covering it up for several days, um, including, you know, the true sin of not reporting it up the chain to the White House. Um, I would have given a lot of money to be at the NSC meeting where, you know, they got the call saying, by the way, the Secretary of Defense has been in the hospital for three days and we just forgot to mention it to you. Um, I would love to have a... a camera going at that moment. But, you know, this is going to be an issue now when Austin, you know, goes up to the Hill in a month or two months or three months or whenever the budget actually comes and has to answer to Congress. And, you know, Marjorie brought this up. There are a number of Republicans who are jumping on this as a fireable, impeachable. This makes you question your judgment offense. This didn't have to be a big issue for Austin. Um, they turned it into one for him. Right. I mean, at best, this is this is uh, a distraction, right? Even if even if it dies down, um, this is what he's going to have to talk about uh, when he prefer to talk about budget priorities and modernization and troops and all sorts of other things. Well, I don't want to jinx anything, but I did bring up the idea of CAFX as SecDef uh, and uh, and I got shouted down for good reason. But uh, it may wind up that uh, that I have unfortunately uh, uh, jinxed Lloyd, Lloyd Austin. 
Kath will be not will be acting uh, through the election. All right, I, you did. Uh, we did mention spending, and uh, lo and behold, uh, in secret, perhaps over the break, it seems that Chuck Schumer and uh, Mike Johnson have agreed to a deal, a spending deal. Uh, I, I'd have to say, over the holiday break, I was pinging people and uh, did not get any uh, get any word of this, uh, or you know, any any even whispers. So, uh, to the four people who negotiated this, it was probably a pretty tight circle. Uh, although we all knew it was going to kind of happen anyway, but so we're, we're, we're running, you know, we're, we're, things are going to run tight here. Uh, conservatives, uh, freedom caucus guys are, are obviously very hurt, either real or pretend. And, uh, we've got a January 19th CR date and then defense, uh, February 2nd. Uh, just your thoughts on how all this is coming in terms of spending. And if you see any, uh, anything to look at. I mean, look, I think we're on the glide slope to getting this done. I think I, I described it as being, you know, the messiest way possible. So that, that you know, that that fits. That's on brand for Washington these days. But, um, you know, any things that you would point out uh, in terms of how we pull this all together by, by February 2nd, or maybe there'll be another CR? Uh, you know, I would say, I, I, I'd agree with you that it seems like signs are looking positive to get this done. And in typical Washington fashion, it, it normally seems like these things tend to take up right up to the deadline. So never hold your breath. But, um, you know, I think the supplemental part is the question mark too. And there's these negotiations going on, I guess, on the immigration piece of it. And that I think is a little more up in the air of how that how that comes together. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, the the biggest thing is one, um, this shows at least Johnson, who is really still a pretty unknown character in Washington by, by Washington circles to become Speaker of the House. It's a probably good sign for people who hope for at least some stability over the next year uh, that he's was able to work this out in pretty quiet confidence, as you mentioned, Roman, uh, with the Democrats and, and the Senate and make this all work so that there's at least something moving forward. I think uh, that's probably a good sign for how he's going to approach 2024, which, you know, if anybody listened to the last episode, one of the big things we talked about was how the election season is going to derail everything. Uh, maybe this is a sign of optimism that some form of regular government can still happen. Um, but to Marjorie's point, look, you know, it, it sometimes feels like everyone in Congress should actually be a journalist because, you know, the one rule for us is you work, you work, you work until the absolute last second of the deadline and you turn in your best effort. Um, so that seems to be how Congress is operating these days. Uh, I got to think, you know, just based on some of the quotes that have come out that there'll be maybe another CR to push everything to that February 2nd date just to give appropriators enough time to actually work out the language. Um, I believe uh, Mitch McConnell said something along those lines recently. But, you know, you're right, Roman, it sure seems like there's a much better chance as we record this today than when we recorded the last podcast that there's going to actually be a 24 budget three months late, four months late. But, you know, that's better than it could be. Uh, spoiler alert uh, for, for those fans of regular order. Uh, this is all going to go down in a big, massive omnibus with a security supplemental attached to it, probably a tax package. And it's going to be just the kind of thing that the House Freedom Caucus guys said they never would do. And they're going to have it jammed down their throat at the last minute, just like we all knew it would happen. And just, just like what always happens. The one thing I would say, and, and then the second thing I would say is uh, I would not, uh, I'm going to throw cold water on your hopefulness uh, for the 24 outlook, because this is the only thing they're going to get done before the election. Uh, I mean, really, Congress, you have one job, uh, so just just do this. Uh, and then my favorite phrase uh, is, if you wait till the last minute, it will only take a minute. <laughs> 
<laughs> so just keep that in mind. Feel free to feel free to use that. You know, Roman, I think you're you're being a little pessimistic though, because I, I do think you got to remember there's going to be an impeachment. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 Exactly. They're going to do something. I think. Don't forget, Congress is also going to manage an impeachment process throughout this too. So. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um. All right. And then in, in, in sort of very serious news, uh, we still do have a lot of shooting going on in the world. And uh, um, right now, I, I mean, actually, yesterday, we, you know, the uh, the Houthis in Yemen uh, staged their largest attack. Uh, I think 21, I think it was something like, you know, maybe uh, 18, you know, one way drones, uh, a couple anti-ship ballistic missiles. Um, you know, just, just kind of the works, uh, while, uh, Tony Blinken is in the region, uh, trying to, uh, you know, whip up allied support and prevent the war from spreading, uh, and all this stuff. I had the opportunity, I was, uh, yesterday I was at, uh, Surface Navy Association, uh, so, which is, uh, you know, the big forum for sort of the Surface Navy, the, you know, cruisers and destroyers and stuff like that. And, the, and these are the ships, uh, on station. Uh, it, it really just, the one thing I would say is there's a, I think there's a lot more going on than the administration wants to talk about. And I, you know, again, I, I'm happy to say this, that I think the administration is downplaying this a little bit. Um, you know, not everybody has eyes on what's going on in the, in the Red Sea and the, uh, the Gulf of Aden, but you know, this, this is some pretty heady stuff going on. I mean, I think this puts the number at, uh, maybe 20, uh, you know, missiles and UAVs that have been shot down since this all started. Um, just any, any sense from you guys in terms of reporting or, or, or anything in terms of uh, how DOD is handling this additional contingency and, and what the administration is doing to kind of keep a lid on the conflict from spreading, not necessarily manage the, uh, the information aspect. Marjorie, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't have specific thoughts on what's happening there. I do think that, you know, your, your point is well taken that this is probably like a you know, number four story in the U.S. press, right? This is not um, getting maybe the attention that um, you might expect given other things going on. You know, what I, I was hearing from Surface Navy, though, is that, that this is sort of a clear example of the fact that the Navy needs to be ready. They need to be ready for combat. And I think for years it's been the Navy needs to be ready for China. And I think the past two years, something like that has been a reminder. It's sort of like you need to be ready for anything. And um, and maybe multiple anythings. So I think that that is kind of the lens I'm looking at this through, and I and sort of what I'm hearing from you know the the conference circuit as it's happening is is this is just an example that the Navy isn't necessarily as ready as it needs to be, and this is an illustration of why you need to be ready. Like readiness is a term that's thrown around, and here's a you know a really serious situation that wasn't necessarily the focus six months ago, twelve months ago, twenty four months ago. Yeah, what's interesting, I mean, putting aside the, you know, up 10th attempt to pivot to the Pacific and only to get dragged back to the Middle East, which is about as American as apple pie at this point, a big part of how the U.S. was hoping to manage uh, everything in the region was by creating these you know, largely naval-based kind of task forces with local forces. Um, you had a number of different you know, operations going on in the, the various bodies of water there, including the Red Sea. Um and we saw over the last, you know, six, seven months before the Israeli conflict really kicked off and, and things kind of, you know, went haywire even more so than normal. We saw that there were some issues with getting some countries involved, um, even though there are some announcements and new ones. Notably, uh, the Red Sea Task Group, which is a naval-based task group, um, the, the formal name of which I don't have right in front of me at the moment, the Saudis would be a perfect partner for that and they've declined to join it. 
um, you know, reporting from our, our person in the region, Agnes Alou is our reporter there, uh, says that, you know, it's largely because the Saudis are kind of annoyed that we didn't take the Houthi threat seriously the way they did and that, you know, they wanted to, to send us a message. And now the Red Sea is suddenly, you know, a major flashpoint. To Marjorie's point, it's not the top piece of news in the U.S., but that's not because it's not important or, or really dramatically changing at a rapid pace. So I think a lot of what uh, the U.S. had been hoping and strategizing and planning for how it handled the region uh, is really being thrown in disarray right now. And you're seeing the seams. And to Marjorie's point, that's where the Navy's ability to quickly get forces and technology and people into the region uh, is going to really be tested and I think is is proving its importance. Right. And, and just you know, as a reminder, or for folks who don't know, uh, the the Biden administration took the Houthis off the sort of terrorist watch list, and uh, I think it was February of 2021. Uh, and then, obviously, all the various uh, you know deal making for one reason or another with the Biden administration and, and the government of Iran, you know, has displeased the Saudis and MBS, uh, and uh, you know, has which has not been a great relationship anyway. Uh, and, and this is clearly uh, something that uh, has has just not. I mean. Perhaps hasn't been a critical error in the uh, the Biden administration, but there's just so much going on that now this is just a complicating factor to to make things even worse. And, and look, I think you know, if to me, um, you know, I flagged something last week. Uh, the Ford Carrier Battle Group has left the Eastern Med, but you've got uh, you know the two carrier battle groups on station. At, well, one in the Red Sea and one in the Philippines, which again, I'm, you know, that's uh, operating in the South China Sea. Um, they, you know, they're they're sort of playing referee or, or, or showing, uh, you know, intent uh, with our allies. Uh, so it, it is a busy time, not just, you know, Israel and or uh, Ukraine, which are obviously two, two preeminent crises. All right. Let's uh, let's shift gears just a little bit. Uh, you know, we we didn't really do a sort of wrap up uh, of last year. We, we, we kind of talked about a lot of things, but I, I just wanted to see if there was if there was one sort of big story from that uh, kind of carryover. Um, you know, obviously we talked about crises, we talked about budget, the election cycle, but, but anything that, that you guys are particularly have your staffs, uh, on the hunt for, or things that you think are going to be, you know, we're, we're going to be hearing about, you know, over the course of this year and, and into the election season. Well, we know, you know, we can't disclose the things that we're on the hunt for highly, highly secret efforts over here, but, um, no, I mean, I, I still think the macro themes are the same. I think that it's, it's the budget. It's the election. It's the crises, crises everywhere. You know, I, I still think from where we stand, which is a lot focused on acquisition policy um, and programs, you know, a lot of attention to Replicator. That's a, that's definitely an area of interest to us, as well as other areas of emerging tech. You know, we're interested in space. We're interested in AI. We're interested in the kind of the, the drone world. So all of those are themes we're going to be tracking closely within those kind of macro ones that I laid out. Yeah, so uh, I've been on paternity leave since the start of December. So uh, my insight into what the team has been told by my my maligned and, and overwhelmed managing editor right now is uh, thankfully not something I have a huge insight into. I can say, you know, if you go to our site, uh, breakingdefense.com, you'll see our kind of year-end uh, look back. And we also did a series of year-end looking forward pieces of each reporter kind of write a little piece about what they're looking forward to on their beat. Um, so, you know, to get into kind of specifics of that, I'd say go check those pieces out because we had, you know, the Navy reporter wrote about the Navy, the Air Force reporter wrote about the Air Force, et cetera, et cetera. 
I'm going to give you kind of a sense of what we're looking at for the next year. Great. Um, well, I do, Marjorie, you brought up Replicator. It's just something I wanted to touch on. I, I was astounded by the sort of, uh, I don't want to say hate pieces that came over, it came out in December, but, you know, just sort of DOD, you know, has no idea what it's doing, where's the beef, uh, all this kind of great stuff. Great as Kath Hicks is, I think she kind of rolled out an idea before it was fully baked, which is something you should never, ever do in, in, in DC or certainly the Pentagon. Uh, and I think they're, you know, kind of quickly um, putting, uh, you know, some meat on the bones to the to this idea. Um, you know, and in fact, I think, uh, you know, one of uh, the defense officials was at CSIS uh, yesterday kind of talking about, you know, suggesting that they were on track. Uh, and, and, you know, you're going to hear some industry griping back and forth, right? Uh, you know, do you, even with something, an idea like Replicator, DUD can't move uh, fast enough. Have you, you know, just anything that you all have, have heard about, you know, wh- whether DUD has, has its act together and is pushing the boundaries? I, I mean, I, I, see, I think, you know, anytime you get the Deputy Secretary of Defense uh, uh, engaged in something, magic's going to happen pretty quick, I think, uh, or at least that's been sort of my experience. Uh, how about you guys in terms of uh, where, you've, uh, where you think it ought to be headed in, in the next uh, you know, couple of months? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to take this one because I'm actually um, I'm quite proud of the deep dive we published on Replicator in December, which I would say is not a hate piece, is not a love piece. It's a real um, thorough look at what's happening here. And I think it's fair to say that, yeah, it was rolled out very perhaps early. Uh, you know, we had some details in our piece that members of Congress didn't know about it. People in the in the building didn't know about it, you know, that a lot of people were caught flat footed. But, you know, in the interviews that our, um, you know, reporter did, they didn't think it was a bad idea. They, you know, just because it was rolled out um, in that way, I think most people thought it was a good idea. And, you know, one of the quotes, I was just pulling up the story because I thought it was um, funny that, you know, we had a quote from um, the head of the Silicon Valley Defense Group who said, you know, basically you can't have it both ways. For years, the Pentagon has heard it's not adopting new technology fast enough now it's trying to move faster and accept more uncertainty and the response is a demand for more details. So it's sort of like, you know, you, you can't you can't have it all the ways that you want it. And so, you know, I think in, in D.C. defense circles, there can be something of a skepticism. You know, we went through Secretary Work's third offset and, you know, it's sort of have we, we've heard these um, high flying initiatives before. Um but a lot of the people interviewed said this is the this is the right way to be going. This is the right thing to be doing. And a lot of industry is heading in that direction anyway, even before Replicator was announced. So yes, I think there is a desire, a demand for we want details, we want contracts, we want to see the money. But the fact that they haven't done that now, I don't think uh, means that it's the wrong idea or the wrong direction. Or at least I don't think that's the perception of of industry or of. Um, kind of, you know, the the experts in in this world. Fair enough, and 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 I would be remiss if I uh, slandered your 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 organization's <laughs> fine work, uh, which I did not. I didn't take it that but, way. I, I mean, but but honestly, I mean, some of it, and and I mean, I will characterize it this way: is so, some of those comments for in your publication and others were, you know, what I would say is the you know kind of peanut gallery chirping about. Hey, where's where's the money? Where's the follow through? Which is which is a natural thing, uh, and, and you know I'm I'm obviously being uh, perhaps a little too glib or irreverent on this, but I mean it is you know it's a yeah, and members of Congress too. You know we were we quoted members of Congress saying 
we have no details. Like, what is this? You know, you can't just give something a fun name and say it's a real thing. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that there's a there is a criticism of we would like to see details and we'd like to see more evidence that this is a a, a live thing. But I think that you know the they set out a pretty ambitious timeline. So if contracts don't start flowing relatively quickly, you know, it becomes obvious that they're that they're behind schedule. Yeah. No. And and I think you know again you're. Now, the, the one thing I would say is, which I, I mean, to me is going to be the uh, the real sorcery involved is if they manage to do this without additional money, right? Because that's, you know, that's the one complaint that I've heard, uh, you know, and, and or it's with the pending, uh, you know, industrial-based strategy that's going to be rolled out here uh, shortly uh, is, is that's great. But, uh, you know, if you spend it, they will come. Uh, but, uh, you know, if, if you don't pony up the dollars, it's just not going to happen. So, yeah, there's the anecdote that when uh, when Secretary Hicks first announced replicator industry was sort of like, ah, and then the next week she said no new money and quickly they deflated <laughs> all the air went out of the room. So, yeah, I do think that is a um, that is a challenge. But also you look at the budget that DOD has, it sort of feels like, you know, can they move stuff around? You would you would think so. Marjorie, come on. How long you been doing that? <laughs> uh Aaron, anything anything you just sort of picked up on or you know i, I know we're uh, you may need a little while to get current but your your thoughts and i know you had th- some thoughts uh prior to this so yeah i think ultimately at the core of it uh marjorie's right that you know this is a situation where nobody says what what capex came out with and replicator is a bad idea everyone agrees hey this is possibilities and and this is the direction we should be going in the questions all seem to be based around you know, how is this going to work? Where's the money going to be? As, as Kath Six said, there's no new money. So what does that actually mean? Ultimately, I think, you know, we've seen solicits come out of the Pentagon over the last couple months, which mentioned Replicator. A lot of these seem like the type of things that maybe the Pentagon was looking to buy anyway. Um, and so my guess is that at least in the short term, a lot of Replicator is going to look like JADC2 did for a while, which is just well, what's JADC2? Well, we'll call anything JADC2 and that'll be all domain. And, and so, you know, that's how we'll mark it up. Um, so I expect to see a number of programs be marked up as replicator. Um, we'll be able to say, hey, we put X number of programs on contract under replicator. I think a lot of these are going to be things they were already looking to buy anyway. I think the real test is going to be down the road, maybe the FY26 request. What's an actual new novel capability designed around the China threat that will actually have come out of the replicator fishing expedition. That's ultimately what this is, is Hicks is saying to industry, show me what you've got. Um, and we want to see what we can get out of it. Um, so, you know, DOD is waiting probably to hear back in some cases. In the meantime, you're going to buy some small drones, uh, you know, that the army was kind of interested in. Well, say, hey, these might be replicator. You can chalk up some wins on paper. Right. No, exactly. I think my uh, my equivalent story is uh, it, back in the day um, when uh, transformation was the term of art. Uh, you know, everything, you know, the everything from the F-22 to the army's new combat boot was listed as transformational. Uh, so, uh I love the uh, the Jad C two bumper sticker, which is just uh, glorious. May it live forever, and uh, certainly a replicator. And but but look, in in a real sense, uh, I would love to see the replicator applied to some of the uh, maritime systems and some of the ground robotic systems that have really not uh, um, not progressed uh, as quickly as some of the, some of the other solutions. Um, but but certainly. 
uh, you know, look, if if the uh, if the Houthis are using one way drones and, you know, unmanned surface vessels or, you know, kamikaze boats uh, and, and certainly the Ukrainians are, uh, you know, I, I certainly would hope uh, DOD and the U.S. Navy and others are, are sort of not uh, not sleeping on this. One thing that I'm really interested in seeing is, you know, whether this remains a China focused effort. That's how Hicks pitched it in her initial response. That's how it's been marketed. But. You know, we've seen the Middle East, as we discussed, change. We've seen Ukraine remain to be an issue. Uh, so as we start to see more programs marked as replicator, I'm really curious to see if it's still all about China or if we start to see things that are applicable in different ways. I think in the maritime patrol boats that are being turned into you know, suicide drones in, in the Middle East is an example of, you know, maybe this is something where replicator has uh, the kind of technologies that can be branded quickly as replicator and bought quickly put in the field quickly are applicable there and might actually see the first action there. I think that's something to definitely keep an eye on. Yeah, that's a great point. And certainly, uh, um, you know, perhaps some of the, uh, you know, nuance in, in the initial rollout. But I mean, again, this is uh, certainly uh, a, a meant to be uh, applicable and sort of, uh, you know, not just the China theater and, and probably has more uh, more readily uh, ready uses in, in, in other regions like the Middle East. Uh, or uh, Europe. Well, that's great. Thank you, everyone. We're out of time for our journal panel. Now we're going to shift gears and go to our focus discussion on U.S. civil, military, and commercial space. I'm joined by Todd Harrison. Todd is a familiar face or voice in Washington, and most folks are probably familiar with his insightful budget analyses. But he's also the go-to guys on all things space, and we're going to get into some of the details and major themes on U.S. and international space policy and some of the big topics in the year ahead. Todd, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for doing this. And, uh, and let's talk about space. Your thing. Let's do it. I guess it's been a while. You've been a, a, a longtime uh, observer of the zero-G environment. And uh, how has it changed over the last, call it eight, maybe 10 years? I mean, I think thematically... That's the one thing people have slowly come to grips with, but um, from both both a national security, civil, and even commercial perspective, uh, describe the change you've seen. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at the charts in terms of the number of space launches per year, the number of new satellites going into orbit, uh, we've just seen exponential growth, uh, unlike anything we've seen in the past. Uh, you know, since the the launch of Sputnik, you know, through present, like we are at an unprecedented time. And that increase, both in the launch rate uh, and in the number of satellites, is being primarily overwhelmingly driven by the commercial space sector uh, and SpaceX in particular. You know, I mean, the numbers are just off the charts. In, you know, 2023, there were over 200 launches globally. SpaceX was responsible for 96 of those. Uh, they broke their previous record from 2022. Um, and it's only going to continue going up from there. That is, that is really impressive. And I, and I just want to restate, I mean, the, the number of launches and, and activity is beyond what was going on, you know, the height of the space race, right? I mean, if you go back and you think like the height of the space race, um, global launches, you know, around like the 60s and 70s, uh, they peaked at around 120, 130 launches per year globally. Uh, so we are well above that now. And the United States, it's uh, our launch rate peaked back in 1966 at 71 launches. 
Uh, and here we were in 2023, the United States alone had 103 launches. Um, so we are beyond, well beyond what we ever were at the peak of the space race. Uh, and, and I do want to just give one shout out, uh, and we will provide a link in the uh, in the show notes. Uh, Todd has uh, put something magical together over at AEI, uh, and he's got a tracker of uh, launch activity and satellites on orbit and space debris. It's, it's just great stuff uh, to grab a cup of coffee or bourbon and sit down and uh, and really see what's going on and, and track some of those numbers. Talk to me about the national security side, because that's also been the big change, not only in spending, but really in strategy and, and sort of the types of satellites and things like that. And we've, you know, we've only seen that uh, accelerate. So how would you how would you describe that shift? Yeah, it's a, a little bit different of a story when you just look at, you know, military and intelligence uh, satellites being launched. Those numbers have been uh, growing quite a bit as well. You know, although we're actually only at about the level in terms of the number of satellites, military satellites being launched this year. We're at about the level that we were at the peak in the Cold War. Um, you know, we haven't really gone too much above that yet. The big difference, though, in the past, you know, eight years uh, is the rise of China and the relative decline of Russia. Uh, Russia is, well, they're running out of money. Uh, and they're not able to launch it or replace as many of their satellites uh, as they have traditionally done in the past, uh, whereas China is just going gangbusters uh, and building out their space capabilities. The U.S. is also increasing uh, its launch rate in terms of number of satellites it's putting up there. Um, that's about to explode in the next two to three years uh, as the Space Development Agency starts launching their satellites in large numbers. They launched some initial tranche zero satellites this year, uh, but they're really going to be getting into to high gear uh, in the next two to three years in launching those satellites to build out this proliferated warfare, uh, warfighter architecture. Right. And, and I note that you used the word explode, not the great best reference when we're talking about <laughs> rockets. Those things cost a lot, but they do tend to explode as well as uh, as any good observer will tell you. So, I mean, if you, we, you mentioned SDA, you mentioned about proliferated uh, architectures, um, but let's talk a little bit about space war and, and the strategy piece of it, right? I, I think it was uh, maybe perhaps one of the former Air Force secretaries, and, and I'm probably mangling these a little bit, but um, I think it was Heather Wilson, maybe, who said that, you know, not only the, not only may the next war be fought in space, but it may, be, may start in space. Um, right. And so, you know, the U.S. has relied for decades on all of these capabilities, whether it's, uh, you know, GPS, imagery, uh, comms, all these things that sort of are the secret sauce to the joint force. And, uh, you know, China and Russia are not bashful about developing anti-satellite capabilities. And that's forced a major change. What, you know, talk a little bit about that, how you've seen that progression. Yeah, you know, people like to call space, you know, the ultimate high ground, but you know, I like to think of it as the ultimate enabler, right? And so for the military, there are so many things uh, that are enabled uh, and in some cases are only possible because of our space-based capabilities. Uh, and so our military and other militaries, more advanced militaries, Russia, China, uh, a lot of our NATO allies, uh, a lot of our major uh, non-NATO allies as well, 
uh, like Japan, Australia, Korea, and space-based capabilities. It's a key enabler for all of us. Uh, Now, that, of course, means that space naturally becomes a legitimate uh, and highly valued target uh, when you get into a conflict. And, and, you know, the idea of the next conflict beginning in space rather than extending into space, I would argue that just happened. Uh, When Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, one of the first attacks that they carried out was uh, a cyber attack. Uh, against a U.S. uh, commercial satellite system, Viasat. They launched an attack, uh, a cyber attack, that went after the modems of the ground receivers that connected these satellites because that's what the Ukrainian military depended on. And uh, they blocked them out. They bricked, you know, and and this affected not just, you know, military users, but civilian users as well. But, you know, what do they care? It's Russia. Um, but that was right at the beginning of the Russian invasion. Uh, and so you know, that that's a good lesson to learn uh, that in the future, we need to anticipate this. Uh, and, you know, even before overt conflicts you know, begin, uh, we may see shadow conflicts happening in space where countries jam or um, lays each other's satellites, you know, temporarily blind imagery satellites, or even maybe permanently damage them. Uh, these kind of soft kill attacks that, you know, aren't explosive. They don't produce a lot of debris or anything like that, uh, but they happen quietly uh, and they can be used to send a signal. Uh, and they may be viewed as something that is below the threshold, uh, this kind of a gray zone like activity, but in space. Right, and I just I, I know uh, as a couple of guys who used to hold clearances, but we, we we won't get anywhere near that kind of stuff. But when people talk about those capabilities in space, I mean, obviously there's the kinetic aspect, right, of putting uh, you know a, a, a colliding a, a rocket or warhead into a satellite, uh, creating an explosion that sends about ten thousand fragments whipping around the. Uh, uh, you know, orbit and uh, and really creates a, a hazard, and and that's what the Chinese did. I guess to correct me if I'm wrong. 2011 was there a big ASAT? I think it was 20... 2007. 2007. That was their big test. Yeah, yeah, that was their big ASAT ASAT test with a kinetic capability. But as you've talked about, it's uh, it's it's lasers, it's jamming, it's spoofing, it's it's all of those things, and then. I mean, really, the most uh, you know t- to me, it's th- it's this great uh, sort of the, the dual use emergent technology is what you know on orbit satellite servicing, right? Which is you have a micro satellite that can you know can attach to a uh, an, an existing satellite on orbit and refuel it or perform repairs or do things like that. But you could just as easily flip it around for nefarious purposes, right? I mean, and, and that's something that we're only starting to see more and more of. Yeah, no, it actually takes you back to kind of the early days of the Cold War. Uh, One of the first anti-satellite weapons that the Soviets started testing and trying to uh, perfect uh, was a co-orbital ASAT weapon, right? And it was was a satellite that was designed to hang out in orbit, uh, and then when commanded, it would intentionally collide with another satellite. Wouldn't actually try to dock with it. That that was too hard. Um, But just try to collide with it. Uh, and they tested uh, uh, those core orbital ASAT weapons, gosh, uh, about two dozen times 
uh, throughout the late 60s and early 70s uh, and produced a decent amount of debris uh, while doing that as well. Uh, but, you know, nothing really matches uh, the Chinese 2007 ASAT test uh, in terms of the amount of debris it produced. Um, that w- that just blows everything else off the charts, uh, you know, right. pun intended. <laughs> but it's also, it's a good indicator. If we got into a kinetic conflict in space, that ASAT test is a good indicator of what we could expect from each and every attack like that. Uh, because they did not do anything to try to minimize the amount of debris produced or to try to put the debris uh, into orbits that would decay uh, within a few weeks around. So, I mean, just to give you some numbers, um, this is just the trackable debris. So things are about the size of a softball or larger. We can't track all the small uh, debris, uh, but just stuff about the size of a softball or larger. That Chinese ASAT test produced about 3,500 pieces of debris initially. Uh, After five years, 3,300 pieces of it were still on orbit. Uh, And even today... Uh, just under 2,700 pieces uh, of debris are still on orbit from that attack. Uh, this stuff does not go away quickly when you, you know, uh, explode a satellite uh, at that type of an altitude. Now, in comparison, like the Russians did a kinetic ASAT test uh, back in 2021, um, uh, not too long, just a few months before the Ukraine invasion. What were they thinking? Were they trying to send us a message or something? Who knows? But they did it. That ASAT test, it produced about 1,800 pieces of debris initially, but within one year, uh, only uh, 500 pieces of uh, debris from that Hmm. were still on orbit. And then today, uh, only 78 pieces are still on orbit. Why the difference? Well, they did it at a lower altitude, uh, and it looks like their intercept Uh, was actually at a slightly downward trajectory. The interceptor was coming down slightly when it hit the target satellite, so it pushed more of the debris, um, you know, into a velocity vector that was closer to the atmosphere, so things burned up quicker. Um, So, I mean, it just goes to show, like, you you can do these tests and these destructive events uh, in a way that maximizes debris uh, or tries to minimize it. Uh, And the Chinese back in 2007... And appears they either did not care or did not know what they right. were doing. Right. That's a, that's a, that's amazing and uh, a very interesting point. And and so uh, you know we we briefly uh, in a different discussion have talked about uh, you know sort of just the large amount of space debris, right? And whether that's and traffic, right? I mean, there's debris and there's also traffic. Um, DoD has a space fence program to uh, develop ground-based radar to kind of look upwards. Uh, there are also uh, constellations and vision of space-based systems that would look downward to help track objects, satellites, and and other fast-moving lethal objects uh, in space. Uh, so, tr- you know, tracking space junk real time uh, is 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 a full-time job for some people, and uh, and you really do have to sort of uh, move these assets around, right, while they're while they're in orbit to uh, to avoid these collisions. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that as, you know, both, you know, defense, commercial and, and you know, NASA and, and other, you know, uh, space programs have to deal with this. Yeah, no, it, it is. That's one of the kind of unique features um, that we're seeing uh, in, you know, the past, you know, eight years or so in the space domain 
Um, you know, I talked about the the launch rate and the number of new satellites going up has been increasing exponentially. Um, well, a lot of those satellites, they stay in orbit, right? Uh, and so if you go back to like around the year 2000, uh, the United States, and so this includes, you know, U.S. companies, U.S. government, military, everything. Uh, the United States in total had less than a thousand satellites on orbit. Uh, if you look at the numbers today, uh, the United States has more than 7,000 satellites wow. on orbit. Now, the vast majority of those belong to SpaceX and the Starlink constellation. That makes up just over 5,000, uh, almost 5,500 uh, satellites uh, that are in orbit. Of course, by the time this airs, it's probably going to be up to 5,600. They keep launching so quickly. Um, but yeah, so you know that we are driving that trend. Uh, you do not see uh, the similar type of slope uh, for other countries. Uh, it is the U.S. is driving it, but that is complicating space operations for everyone, right? Uh, when you're looking to launch, uh, when you're looking to put your satellite into orbit, you've got a lot of other objects that you've got to take into account, debris, but also active satellites. Right. Kind of shifting gears, I guess, a little bit to just the sort of commercial side, but I guess, you know, as well from from defense, I mean, where do you see sort of the big growth areas or or disruptive areas? And, and, and perhaps, you know, is it is it launch? Is it these smaller, you know, uh, uh, Leo Mio constellations? Uh, is it payloads, you know, new, new technologies and payloads? Um, wh what do you think are some of the sort of things to look for uh, this year and in the coming year? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the biggest uh, disruptors we're seeing uh, is the deployment of these very large constellations of satellites uh, on the commercial side, but also on the military side. Uh, on the commercial side, you know, obviously SpaceX with Starlink is is way up there in terms of numbers, uh, but Amazon, their Kuiper uh, constellation that will compete directly with Starlink, uh, that's set to start launching in significant numbers this year. And OneWeb, of course, is already up there. It remains to be seen how economically viable uh, OneWeb system is going to be. Are they going to be a, a, a major player in the Leo SATCOM market going forward? We'll see. That'll probably sort itself out in 2024, depending on how many subscribers they get. Uh, but on the military side, it's really interesting to see these mega constellations uh, starting to grow. That in the U.S., that is driven uh, by the Space Development Agency. Uh, and they're building out a constellation um, that's for what they call data transport, essentially communications. Uh, they're also building out a uh, sensing constellation uh, that's for missile, uh, missile detection, launch detection, and missile tracking throughout all phases of flight. Um, so there's a lot of cool things that they can be building, that they are building into uh, those proliferated constellations. Uh, and we're going to see those really start to take shape uh, in 2024. But I would say that the biggest disruptive event uh, that we're likely to see happen in 2024 is going to be in launch. And it is the SpaceX Starship uh, new launch vehicle. Uh, the super heavy launch vehicle. They've had two test flights so far. Uh, haven't quite gotten the whole system to work. Uh, that's to be expected. Um, but you know, they're, they're eyeing their next test launch sometime in February, pending FAA approval. It may take a few more tests after that, uh, before they get this thing, 
you know, fully uh, working and, and putting objects in order in orbit. Uh, it may take even more uh, before they get the reusability working of both the first stage and the second stage. Uh, but once they do, and they eventually will, <laughs> uh, right. you can count on it. Uh, once they do, he, here's why it's such a disruptive event. Each one of those Starship launches will have the payload capacity of about 10 Falcon 9 launches. Wow. It's huge. The payload fairing inside it uh, is 8 meters compared to 4 or 5 meters for traditional uh, launch vehicle, heavy launch vehicle. Um, so you can put just a mass, massive payloads or stacks of massive numbers of satellites uh, into a single launch vehicle. The other disruptive thing about it is it's designed to be fully reusable. Right now, the, the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy, only the first stages uh, are reusable. Um, this thing, the whole system is designed to be reusable. And, it, you know, and in comparison, the other major launch vehicles uh, coming online, ULA's Vulcan uh, just had the first successful uh, test flight uh, just a few days ago. Uh, there's nothing reusable on it. It's fully ex uh, expendable. They say one day they might jettison the main engines from the first stage and parachute them back or something and reuse plans for that. Um, so it'll never be cost competitive. Uh, and then you look at uh, the Europeans, their Ariane 6 uh, new launch vehicle uh, should be launching maybe uh, sometime this year. Maybe it pushes into 2025. We'll see. Uh, but again, no reusability built into that. The only real competitor I see on the horizon uh, is Blue Origin with their new Glenn launch vehicle, which has been in the works for quite a while. Um, they say they might be ready for a first test launch by the end of this year. Uh, and that rocket is supposed to have a reusable first stage. Um, so we'll wait and see uh, if they finally roll something out. Uh, I, I always... It's worth noting that Blue Origin has actually been around longer than SpaceX. Uh, they have not yet put anything into orbit, though. So it's a big head-scratcher. Well, that's a good stat. That is a good stat. Um, well, and, and so I was going to ask you about some of those other guys in launch. And I mean, it is... Um, it's just amazing what SpaceX has been able to do, continue to do. I, th I think it was third time was the charm for Falcon. Uh, so, I mean, not to suggest that, I mean, they still have a long way to go on on the heavy, but um, on Starship. Yeah. I mean, as you did say, we got, we got Vulcan um, out of ULA. There's obviously, the, the government is trying to keep this a competitive, you know, on, on the heavy launch missions. Um, but it just seems like SpaceX is, uh, is going away with it. I mean, how, how do you, what do you think are there, yeah. what are the hurdles here? I mean, really, is it? Yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting one, right? That if you just look at the numbers, you would say, well, you know, SpaceX is clearly like becoming the monopoly launch provider, but are they doing anything, uh, to secure that monopoly or extend that monopoly that's anti-competitive? I don't see it. I mean, you know, even to the extent of, yes, you know, SpaceX has got a huge advantage in launch. They're getting into SATCOM with Starlink. Um, they're using their own launch vehicle, right? So they are, are building on that kind of vertically integrated advantage. But when OneWeb lost uh, their access to space, they were planning to launch satellites on Russian launch vehicles. And after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they could not launch those anymore. And SpaceX said, sure, I'll launch your satellites. 
So they're launching the competitor satellites. The same thing has happened uh, with Amazon and their Kuiper satellites, their direct competitor to SpaceX. Um, but they were ready to launch. They contracted literally with every launch vehicle other than SpaceX. None of them were available yet. So they finally went to SpaceX and said, can you launch ours? You know, and SpaceX said, sure. And so now they've moved contracts over uh, to SpaceX. So, you know, SpaceX had the opportunity to do something anti-competitive to leverage their monopoly and launch to secure monopoly in SATCOM. They didn't do it, though. So you got to give them credit that they're just out competing on the merits. Um, but from a national security perspective, you know, it is military policy, stated policy that we want to have at least two independent launch providers. That's why they structure the launch contracts for the medium and heavy lift uh, launches uh, through the you know National Security Space Launch Contract in SSL. That's why they structured it so that there are there are two awards and a guaranteed minimum. And that's what's keeping ULA in the market, quite frankly. Um, and that will continue. And then looking at the next iteration of the launch contract, they actually want to bring three launch providers uh, on the contract. Now, you know, they only really need to, by policy, only need to maintain two, but that does open the door for potentially Blue Origin to work their way in there and eventually outcompete ULA on the U.S. military launch contracts. Now, uh, I know the Wall Street Journal did have a unsubstantiated report potentially about uh, a number of folks being in the bidding on ULA, of which Blue Origin uh, was referenced as one of them. Um, you know, I mean, obviously for, for a guy like Jeff Bezos, who's, uh, you know, writing a billion dollar check a year to keep Blue Origin running, uh, this kind of buys you right into the, really the, the, what I would call, right, the traditional, uh, space launch guy or the, you know, the folks that have long heritage, uh, with, with NASA and DOD. Um, would you think something like that is, is likely, um, is, is that just a way to kind of jumpstart to finally get some of the you know, uh, uh, not only credibility, but technical know-how and, and everything that they would really use to kind of make Blue Origin that key second guy. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's not been much of a secret for a long time that Boeing and Lockheed have wanted to divest uh, from ULA. Uh, and so I think, you know, this first successful launch of Vulcan gives them that opportunity. Uh, and so they have been shopping it around and you know, pretty much everyone expected no decision would be made uh, until after the first successful launch. Now that's happened. So maybe we'll see something start to move in the market. Um, I would say on the one hand, it would make a lot of sense for Blue Origin to buy them uh, because it does give Blue Origin immediate access to U.S. government contracts. There is value in buying a company just to have its its contracts. Sure. Um, uh, also, there's a lot of good synergy because ULA's Vulcan rocket, uh, the main engine for the first stage, they buy it from Blue Origin. It's the same main engine that's used on the new Glenn, the BE-4. Uh, so there's synergy there. So you're basically, uh, you're, you have, uh, day one, you have a family of launch vehicles uh, with a lot of overlap. Uh, right. And you know, new Glenn would be significantly larger uh, in payload capacity. Uh, than Vulcan. So it's synergy, not really overlap so much. I'll say that there's some downside too. Uh, the downside is 
Blue Origin would be buying uh, a lot of legacy infrastructure uh, that ULA has inherited uh, over the years from, you know, Boeing and Lockheed and all their previous launch ventures. They would also be buying, uh, how to say it politely, uh, a legacy workforce <laughs> as well. Um, that is, you know, not what, um, you know, what Blue Origin has been trying to build. Uh, so they would have to to figure out how to navigate those things and, of course, integrating company culture. But on the bright side, um, ULA has recent experience actually getting a new launch vehicle from design uh, out to flight, successful flight. Blue Origin doesn't have that experience. And so, you know, it could be beneficial to them to bring in some of that legacy experience, if you will. Sure, sure. Uh, I don't want to end it on a total downer, but uh, NASA announced Artemis uh, is, uh, I guess, going to be delayed. And, you know, they've got, uh, I don't want to say challenges, but there have been challenges uh, with SLS the whole time. What, uh, what's your thought there on, uh, on, the, on the, you know, the Artemis moon missions and, and, and where that goes? Yeah, you know, I don't know that this is really bad news more than it's just uh, the public news catching up to the private news, <laughs> right? That when the Trump administration came out with the original goal of uh, returning humans to the moon uh, with a landing in uh, 2025, pretty much everyone, including NASA, knew that that was an aggressively unrealistic timeline. Um, now, there's good reason to go with an aggressive timeline and something like this, because, you know, whatever you set the date to be, it's going to end up slipping. So start people at an earlier date, uh, push them hard, uh, and that will get the program moving faster in the initial stages, get contracts awarded. And it did. Uh, it's just that the work takes a little longer. Um, and so, yeah, it, the missions are extending out. It, it's not a huge surprise. They're having right. technical, de technical difficulties with the Orion capsule. Um, and you got to get that right before you put humans on it. And the first human flight with that, that capsule will be Artemis II. So that has slipped. Uh, all that mission is going to do is basically loop around the moon and come back to Earth with astronauts on board. Um, it's the Artemis III mission that's even more complicated. That's where they're actually going to send that Orion capsule out. They're going to dock with a landing system provided by SpaceX, um, land on the moon, come back up, dock with the capsule, bring the crew back to Earth. Way more complicated. Uh, that has slipped now out to 2027. Um, it would not surprise me if it slips again. Uh, the you know one of the critical uh, enablers of that Artemis three mission uh, is SpaceX, and that lander is right. the upper stage. Uh, of the Starship that they're trying to test now. So what I would say is from a, a DC policy perspective, uh, NASA uh, and the Biden administration through the National Space Council, they really need to be riding herd on the FAA to get these launch licenses approved more quickly. Not jeopardizing safety in the launch range sure. or anything sure. like that, but if there's things they can do to work weekends uh, to speed up the process, they need to be doing that because the Artemis program is critically dependent on SpaceX making a lot of progress on Starship in the next year or two. Right, right. Uh, and then maybe there's even an outside chance that Starship, Elon pushes it, and and maybe that becomes the vehicle, right, for the entire Artemis series. And you know he's going to try to do that if he can. 
Yeah, I I don't think it's likely he could do that for Artemis three. Uh, but for future Artemis missions down the road, I think that's entirely uh, an open possibility. Uh, simply because you know the architecture NASA is planning to use right now, it launches the Orion capsule uh, on an SLS rocket, uh, and the recurring cost of those rockets right now are something like four billion. Yeah. Um, it's just ridiculously expensive. Uh, Starship will be a fraction of that. Uh, and so, yeah, longer term, it probably makes sense for NASA to switch. But the other factor, too, is SpaceX does not have a lock on the lunar lander that NASA, uh, because Congress forced them to, uh, NASA has awarded a separate lunar lander contract to Blue Origin, a team right. led by Blue Origin. Uh, and so there'll be another lander option uh, that's coming in the pipeline as well. Right. Right. Todd, this is great. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to bring it to a close here and uh, no space conversation would be uh, complete. Uh, I, I know I might get you into trouble here with some listeners, but are you a Star Trek guy or a Star Wars guy? Uh, I'm more of a Star Wars guy. I have right. to admit. Yeah. Sure. But, but right now I, I'm a, a, an avid watcher of For All Mankind, uh, the HBO uh, okay. series. Okay, here you go. Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Okay, awesome. Uh, Todd, so great to see you. Thanks so much. Uh, really appreciate it. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Thanks.